Welcome to Book Sandwiched In. I'm Claire Sorrell with Friends of the Knox County Public Library. This program is about climate change, and so is February's program. These two programs present very different positions, and it should be interesting to hear both of them. We are honored today to welcome Dr. Dan Terpstra, a climate change activist and retired computer scientist. Dan received his PhD in chemistry from Florida State University, but has spent most of his career as a computer scientist. Before retirement, he was a senior scientist at the University of Tennessee, responsible for the performance of supercomputers around the world. Along the way, Dan developed a deep concern for environmental sustainability, particularly as related to climate change. Currently, he works as an instructor and team leader for Living Waters for the World, a faith-based nonprofit that teaches communities in the developing world how to provide their own safe drinking water. Dan Tepstra is also national moderator for Fossil Free PCUSA, working to divest the Presbyterian Church's dependence on fossil fuel companies. Dan will be talking about This Changes Everything, Capitalism versus the Climate by Naomi Klein. Please welcome Dr. Tepstra. Good afternoon. This is the first time I've been at one of these presentations, but I think I'm going to at least have to come back next month to see what uh, the book about Bjorn Lomborg is all about. Uh, I read that book some time ago, and it's got a dramatically different perspective than the one that I'm going to be sharing with you today. Since this is the first time I've been here, most of you probably don't know me, although I have seen a couple of familiar faces in the audience, and I thank you for coming out. Um, Just by way of introduction, I've been what I would call a a closet environmentalist most of my adult life, Uh, and by that I mean that uh, I've appreciated nature, uh, but I've done it... um, I I do my tree-hugging in private, if you will. I haven't been really involved with environmental activism per se until probably just the last five years or so. So that's been a transition for me. And over the years, I've I've sort of evolved from just appreciating nature to becoming concerned about our sustainability with respect to nature, realizing that the planet is a closed system and resources aren't infinite. And as I evolved my understanding, I began to be aware of the fact that climate change is sort of the elephant in the room. That's sort of the big issue as far as how we deal with sustainability. And that led to an understanding, maybe based on my physical science background, that the way we use energy is really what drives our relationship to climate change. So there's been a progression there from the very general appreciation to the very specific focus on energy and our energy systems and what we can do about them. And that's in large part what uh, Naomi's book talks about, too. Probably since about 2013, I've transitioned from being a closet environmentalist to being an environmental activist, and I've, I've stepped out in a lot of ways that I never expected to. At this stage, I'm really kind of in the place where I feel like fossil fuels trumps everything. 
I mean, that's, that's what we've got to deal with somehow if we're going to get our hands around this whole issue of how we are going to slow climate change. Uh, so that's my focus. Klein would probably disagree with that because she says that a single focus on a single issue like that is probably inappropriate, and we've got to be more holistic. Um, so that's sort of where I come from. One of the questions I always like to ask when I read a new book is, where does the author come from? What's the background on the author? Uh, if any of you have done any, uh, any background work on uh, Naomi Klein, you've probably discovered that she's Canadian, born to American parents, so I guess she could probably run for vice president with Ted Cruz. Uh, <laughs> Although that's unlikely to happen if, if you've read the book. <laughs> Her parents were, were uh, self-admitted hippies in the 60s. Um, he was an MD and she was a, a theater producer. And they moved from the States to Montreal in the 60s in protest of the uh, Vietnam War. And if you go back even further than that, her grandparents on her dad's side were card-carrying communists in the 40s and 50s. So uh, she's definitely not coming from the same economic perspective as Ted Cruz. Uh, she's written a couple of other books. Uh, I've not read any of them, but uh, they've gotten some good press and good attention. Uh, her first book in 2000 was No Logo. Uh, and that was about uh, consumerism and um, um, designer branding. Um, in 2007, seven years later, she wrote a book called The Shock Doctor, and that one got actually more attention. In that one, she's putting forth a theory of disaster capitalism. Large corporations and even, even political systems will take advantage of disasters to promulgate uh, unpopular free market policies uh, in the wake of disasters that they might not have been able to do otherwise. And that theme kind of comes back into uh, this book as well, where she talks in some cases about how climate change is creating those same kinds of disaster capitalism opportunities. Then last year in September, she published this book. So there's a seven-year period between the books. Uh, this Changes Everything, uh, subtitled Capitalism Versus the Climate. Oh, and by the way, there's also a movie of the same name. The interesting tidbit there is that her husband is a documentary film producer, and he actually accompanied her on a lot of her interviews for the book, and they produced the movie and the book simultaneously. So a lot of the stuff that you'll read in the book, some of the interviews that she has in the book, are also in the movie. The movie has a, a different thrust and focuses more on storytelling than the book does. But both of them are, are very nice compliments to each other. You can get that on iTunes or uh, Amazon Prime or a couple other places like that. I first encountered Klein's work through Bill McKibben. Bill was here in 2013 and, and gave a presentation at uh, the University of Tennessee as part of the Life of the Mind book program. His book, uh, Earth with Two A's, was the book that all the freshmen read that year. And I think that book was also reviewed by uh, this group as well at, at one point in the past. You may not know that, that Bill also spoke the night before he spoke here in Oak Ridge. And I was involved in getting, him, getting that arranged and getting him um, to come to Oak Ridge. Once we got the details lined up and knew that he was coming, I was working with uh, the kids in our community to get them involved in this whole issue because it's their generation that's going to be paying the price for most of what we do. And as part of that, we showed uh, Bill McKibben's movie, The Do the Math Tour. Have, has anybody seen Do the Math? It's about a 42-minute movie. talks about uh, 
his tour in November and December where he went around the country to 21 different cities and talked about uh, um, divestment and climate change. And uh, the do the math was the three numbers in math that lead to the fact that we've got to get off fossil fuels in a hurry. As part of that tour, Naomi Klein joined him on stage for most of those presentations. And I discovered her through him in that context. Fast forward about a year, I'd gotten heavily involved in uh, fossil fuel divestment within the Presbyterian Church in the U.S., and I got called to Boston to testify in front of the Mission Responsibility Through Investment Committee of the Presbyterian Church. These are the, the guys that decide on the sustainable investment policies of the denomination and where they put their $10 billion in uh, endowment money and uh, pensions money. So I was testifying before them, had to go up to Boston, I needed something to read, and it occurred to me that about a month earlier, Naomi Klein's book had come out. So I downloaded the book, and by the time I got back from Boston that weekend, I'd finished it. I found it a compelling read. It's not an easy read, and it's a long read, uh, but there's a lot of really good stuff in it. This changes everything. This what? Climate disruption, okay? So not just climate change. Disruption's a little bit more serious than just change, right? This crisis. I want to read a quote that, uh, that she's got on page 28. The thing about a crisis this big, this all-encompassing, is that it changes everything. It changes what we can do, what we can hope for, what we can demand from ourselves and our leaders. It means that there is a whole lot of stuff that we've been told is inevitable that simply cannot stand. And it means that there's a whole lot of stuff we've been told is impossible that has to start happening right away. So for her, the this is the fact that we have created a crisis by not acting. And it's the crisis that changes everything. Uh, and the everything, well, the everything comes from the subtitle, Capitalism versus Climate Change. So she's talking about changing our economic system, and uh, that's pretty fundamental. Now keep in mind that she came from that lefty, hippie background in Montreal, so her perspective is not run-of-the-mill Reagan republicanism. <laughs> Yeah. So the book is divided into three sections. The first section, well, she starts with a pretty long introduction that sort of sets the stage for why she wrote it, how she got involved in climate change and things like that. Um, she's a, a relative newcomer to climate change. She didn't start writing about it or, or thinking about it seriously until about 2009. The, the Copenhagen COP20 or COP, what was it, 17 or whatever meetings uh, that were a disaster as far as setting climate policy uh, were sort of her introduction to the whole issue of climate change and when she really began to get involved in it. The first section of the book is five chapters. It's called Bad Timing, and she's dealing with the basic idea of how Reagan market deregulation sort of came head-to-head -head with climate change and how those two issues sort of do battle with each other. So uh, she's setting the stage for how we got to where we are, essentially. Um, the second section is called Magical Thinking. It's three chapters, and it basically deals with the solutions that some sectors of 
our civilization are attempting to use to change climate back or to deal with climate change and not have to change anything else. Uh, And she calls that magical thinking because she doesn't think any of those things are going to be successful. Uh, Part three is her section on hope. Uh, It's five more chapters where she sort of outlines, well, what can we do? And she titles that section, Starting Anyway, um, in spite of everything going on. She's hopeful in that section, but by no means offering any guarantees that that hope will be realized. Chapter 1 is titled, The Right is Right. Subtitle is, The Revolutionary Power of Climate Change. And she makes the point that basically it's not about the science. It's about worldviews. It's about ideologies. And I read a book about a year and a half ago called uh, The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided on Politics and Religion. If you haven't read it, look it up. It's by Jonathan Haidt. It gave me perspective on conservatism and progressivism without judgment and allowed me to see both sides of the issue and how people can legitimately approach things like climate change from two very, very different perspectives. And, and that's sort of echoed in a, in a quote from the Yale Cultural Cognition Project. People with strong egalitarian and communitarian worldviews marked by an inclination toward collective action and social justice, concern about inequality, and suspicion of corporate power, overwhelmingly accept the scientific consensus on climate change. It's the worldview that drives the acceptance of science. Conversely, those with strong hierarchical and individualistic worldviews, marked by opposition to government assistance for all the poor and minorities, strong support for industry, and a belief that we all pretty much get what we deserve, overwhelmingly reject the scientific consensus. So the belief set comes first, and then we find the facts to support our positions. So all of you who walk around thinking that you're objective scientists, like me, um, it's probably not the case. Um, We've reversed cause and effect there, and we need to keep that in mind. Uh, She's got another quote on page 63. The actions required, in in this case required to address climate change, directly challenge our reigning economic paradigm of deregulated capitalism combined with public austerity. The stories on which Western cultures are founded, that we stand apart from nature and can outsmart its limits, as well as many of the activities that form our identities and define our communities, like shopping, living virtually, and shopping some more. They all spell extinction for the richest and most powerful industry in the the world has ever known, the oil and gas industry, which cannot survive in anything like its current form if we humans are to avoid our own extinction. She doesn't pull punches. So so that's kind of what's going on in that first chapter. It's our ideology that drives us, and we've got a very deeply divided ideology in the country these days. The next chapter is called Hot Money, and it's basically about globalization and free trade. There's been a lot written on that. And if you think about it, that whole trend happened at about the same time that we began to be aware of the seriousness of climate change. So a little history here. Uh, 1988... 
Jim Hansen testified before the Senate, invited by Al Gore. That was sort of the defining initial moment when the public became aware of climate change. He said it was happening then. He said there was a, a defensible proof of it. 1989, Berlin Wall came down. Uh, a lot of historians called that the end of history. Uh, it hasn't quite played out that way, but that's what they were saying then. A big political change. 1992, the UNFCCC, the Framework Convention on Climate Change in Rio, the very first big convention where world leaders got together and said, we have to do something to guarantee sustainability. Uh, even George Bush, the first, agreed with that uh, at the time in 92. So we're back on the, on the environment side. 93, NAFTA got implemented. Back on the economic side, globalization, uh, free market trade across borders. Uh, the big green groups were very much supportive of that. Groups like EDF and Audubon, NRDC, all those guys jumped on board and they were quite supportive. Um, 94, World Trade Organization, another economic piece of the puzzle, globalization. Um, 97, Kyoto Protocol. Well, we all know how that worked out. So basically, throughout that whole period, first world nations started exporting their manufacturing, and along with their manufacturing, they were exporting their pollution, and therefore also exporting their guilt in a lot of ways. So how many times have you heard, what about China? Not quite so much anymore, but in years past, it was always, what about China? Up to 40% of China's carbon footprint was generated manufacturing products to be sold in the first world countries. So we have exported our carbon footprint to the developing world because of cheap labor prices. The interesting thing about all these trade uh, agreements like NAFTA and others, uh, the TPP is one that's, that's currently in vogue. President Obama is pushing that one right now. Uh, almost all of them have uh, clauses in them preventing restrictions on trade across markets to the point where you can't implement environmental policies that in any way restrict trade. You can't implement a policy to buy local. Uh, you can't implement a policy that will harm another country. In fact, right now, TransCanada is suing the U.S. because the U.S. has decided not to allow the Keystone Pipeline. They're suing us for $15 billion for loss of trade across the border because of NAFTA. They've got the permission to do that. So we've got an economic policy that stands directly in opposition to our ability to do anything about climate change. So another quote. Page 72. Three policy pillars of the neoliberal age privatization of the public sphere, deregulation of the corporate sector, and the lowering of income and corporate taxes paid for with cuts to public spending are each incompatible with many of the actions that we must take to bring our emissions to safe levels. So all the things that, that we've been working for since Reaganomics in the 80s, uh, she claims are in direct opposition to us being able to do anything uh, about climate change. Okay, the third chapter is called Public and Paid For, and there she's, she's basically dealing with the idea of de-privatization of things that were once in the public sphere, uh, water utilities, 
electric utilities. Uh, she holds up the example that uh, Boulder, Colorado, basically went public again with their utilities, bought it back from Xcel Energy because Xcel couldn't make enough money with renewables and the city of Boulder wanted to go renewable. So the only way they could do it was by bringing it back into the public sphere. And uh, she says that there's a trend occurring now that more and more of that is moving back into the public sphere from the private sphere. So we're seeing a reversal of the trend over the last 30 years of privatization of a lot of these uh, the public resources. And if you think about it, big stuff really can't happen very effectively in the private sphere. Uh, things like um, the way we mobilized uh, manufacturing for World War II, things like uh, the interstate highway system, the Internet, believe it or not, was invented by Al Gore. <laughs> well, not exactly, but he was, he was heavily involved in creating the, the government economic infrastructure to make it happen, in spite of what many have said. Um, public transit, space, and dealing with disasters. Those are not things that, that are effectively dealt with uh, by privatization. So she argues that in order for us to be resilient enough to deal with those things, we have to accept the inefficiencies of dealing with it through government rather than uh, the efficiencies of for-profit-driven agencies. And then the idea, too, is, is who's going to pay for all of this public sector development? Taxes pay for that. Oh, no, we're going to have to raise taxes. That's, that's a tough, tough lift. So what she says is back in the 60s and 70s, the polluter paid with all the regulations that we put in place, and we've got to get back to that idea and make it acceptable for the polluter to pay for the pollution that they're doing. In the case of fossil fuels, that's probably a tax on carbon in some form or another. There's a group called uh, Citizens Climate Lobby that's, that's pushing really hard on something called fee and dividend right now. That's another way to say tax and rebate, but nobody wants to use the tax word, so we'll call it something else. That effort's supported by a lot of folks. James Hansen is one of them. But it basically recognizes the idea that high earners and high spenders have big carbon footprints. So if you tax carbon, they will pay more, and that money can then be distributed more broadly so that it doesn't disadvantage the poor with carbon taxes. And what they found is that those kinds of tax increases are perfectly acceptable to the majority of the public as long as they're perceived to be fair and equitable. So it is possible to do it. On the other hand, the fossil fuel companies don't want anything to do with those kinds of things. Uh, they'd much rather invest in, in lobbyists or, in Exxon's case, in denialists than in renewables. Rex Tillerson at last year's uh, stockholder meeting said uh, when somebody asked him, why don't you invest more in renewables, he basically said, we choose not to lose money on purpose. Well, that may be a perfectly legitimate thing for a for-profit company to say, but it's not in the best interests of society. So we need to figure out how to get control of those things again. Okay, chapter four is planning and banning, slapping the invisible hand. And she basically brings up the shock doctrine at this point and the fact that the Great Recession in 2009 uh, was an opportunity for that, that Obama took some advantage of with uh, um, his uh, subsidy program, but she says he didn't go far enough. 
she says that that was a great opportunity for doing a whole lot more public planning and long-range thinking about how to solve some of the fundamental problems we've got, like uh, mass transit and uh, renewables and things like that. She points out that you hear a lot of talk about natural gas being a bridge fuel for the future. She says that without regulation and planning, natural gas might just replace solar as easily as it replaces coal. And unless there's some kind of a reciprocal plan in place to ensure that the gas replaces dirtier fuels like coal, that uh, there's no guarantee it'll help footprint at all. In fact, she points to the fact that in Germany, even though Germany is is sort of the poster boy of of renewables with uh, wind and, and solar, their carbon footprint has gone up because the coal companies haven't gotten the memo that they were supposed to stop producing when all these renewables came online. So they're still producing full tilt and selling their energy to the surrounding countries. So uh, it hasn't benefited. So there's got to be coordination. There's got to be regulation and control uh, from her perspective. So uh, one of the phrases you see a lot of is system change, not climate change. And uh, there's another quote on page 154 this time. The climate movement offers an overarching narrative in which everything from the fight for good jobs to justice for migrants to reparations for historical wrongs like slavery and colonialism can all become part of the grand project of building a non-toxic, shock-proof economy before it's too late. The alternative to such a project is not the status quo extended indefinitely. It's climate change fueled disaster capitalism. Profiteering disguised as emission reduction, privatized, hyper-militarized borders, and quite possibly high-risk geoengineering when things spiral out of control. The last chapter in this first section of How Did We Get Here is called Beyond Extractivism, Confronting the Climate Denier Within. This one she rolls all the way back to 1623, um, four or five hundred years ago, and Francis Bacon. She basically postulates that Bacon was the one who got us thinking of the earth not as our mother and our progenitor, but as an object to be exploited. And uh, she says, Bacon convinced Britain's elites to abandon once and for all pagan notions of the earth as a life-giving mother figure to whom we owe respect and reverence and accept the role as her dungeon master. For you have but to follow and, as it were, hound nature in her wanderings, Bacon wrote, and you will be able, when you like, to lead and drive her afterwards to the same place again. Neither ought a man to make scruple of entering and penetrating into all these holes and corners when the inquisition of truth is his sole object. And then she adds parenthetically, not surprisingly, feminist scholars have filled volumes analyzing the ex-Lord Chancellor's metaphor choices. But this isn't uncommon. Uh, Back in the late 60s, uh, Lynn White, a Presbyterian elder and historian from Stanford and uh, Harvard, wrote a paper called The Historical Roots of Ecological Crisis, where he said the Judeo-Christian idea of domination of creation basically played itself out in exactly this idea of exploiting 
natural resources. Uh, the earth was there for us to get whatever we could from. In the next year, 1968, uh, Garrett Hardin wrote The Tragedy of the Commons, which is a, a paper that every environmentalist has probably read at some point or another, dealing with the same kind of issue of, of how individual greed exploits uh, resources to the detriment of all. So there's no sense of community in that kind of situation. She makes the wonderful connection between three major historical events that all occurred about the same time in 1776. You can guess one of those, right? American Revolution. Uh, two others about the same time, James Watt perfected the steam engine. And by doing that, he basically decoupled us from our dependence on wind and animal power and things like that. Third thing happened was Adam Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations. So we have this convergence of three different threads going on at the same time. Energy is decoupled from our dependence on nature. So we can now control energy anytime we want, in any way we want. Suddenly we discover that selfish greed is good, right? What is it? Enlightened self-interest is good. We suddenly are on the verge of, of a brand new country with endless frontiers. There's no resource limits. We can just expand forever, right? We're on, on the eastern edge of this huge continent, and nobody even knows what's out there. So if you think about renewables instead, suddenly we're back to being dependent on the sun, being dependent on the wind, and on those patterns and those rhythms. The big complaint you hear about renewables, generally, given that it may or may not have some merit to it, is that it's not dependable. The sun doesn't always shine. The wind doesn't always blow. Therefore, we have to have all kinds of backup in place. So those are some of the big criticisms of, of renewable energy. But it makes us more responsive to the world around us and more dependent on it rather than being the independent dungeon masters, as uh, Klein would have put it. Okay, so that's, that's kind of how we got to where we are. The next section is three chapters of magical thinking. Uh, the first one is that she claims that uh, the big green organizations, uh, Environmental Defense Fund, Audubon Society, um, Nature Conservancy, NRDC, all these big organizations got co-opted in the 80s by government. In the 60s and 70s, when most of those organizations first began to appear, driven in part by Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, they were all about... Sue the bastards, in Klein's words, and they had some major victories. And in fact, um, Klein lists a whole bunch of legislation that was passed in those decades, starting with the Clean Air Act in 63, the Wilderness Act in 64, the Water Quality Act in 65, on and on and on, 23 different organizations uh, finishing up with the Toxic Substances Control Act in 76, 23 different major laws passed to protect our environment from pollutants in the 60s and 70s. She said in the 80s everything changed. All of a sudden Fred Krupp is now negotiating with Walmart and uh, EDF is drilling oil wells on their nature reserves in Texas. Uh, the whole culture of these big green groups has changed fundamentally. Part of that was their, their support of trade agreements like NAFTA and things like that. So rather than sue the bastards, it became, let's create markets for the bastards. Yeah, different thinking. 
Um, the refusal of so many environmentalists to consider responses to the climate crisis that would upend the economic status quo forces them to place their hopes in solutions, whether miracle products or carbon markets or bridge fuels that are either so weak or so high risk that entrusting them with our collective safety constitutes what can only be described as magical thinking. Okay, so that's kind of the idea there about uh, the big green organizations have been co-opted. Next chapter is titled No Messiahs, and uh, the subtitles The Green Billionaires Won't Save Us. That chapter is all about Richard Branson. You might remember back in 2006, he uh, had a green conversion experience when Al Gore showed him a PowerPoint presentation. And... Uh, he pledged $3 billion to create biofuels for his airline and his trains and things like that. And he created another fund of $25 million that was going to be an award to somebody who could figure out how to sequester carbon cheaply and effectively. Uh, so he sort of jumped in with both feet. And Naomi Klein goes further and talks about a lot of other billionaires that also have gotten involved in the game. You know these names. Warren Buffett was one of them. Michael Bloomberg was co-author on the Risky Business Paper a couple years ago. Uh, Bill Gates, T. Boone Pickens uh, with natural gas. And one of the most recent is Tom Steyer. You might not know that name yet. Steyer was uh, a hedge fund capitalist who had Farallon Investment Managements in California turned it into a couple billion dollars in personal wealth and then realized that he could no longer control the company and couldn't direct them into doing uh, socially responsible investing, so he left. And uh, he, he then founded a, a group called Next Gen Climate, and you might see their tagline on advertising at um, college games. I saw their advertisements. And uh, at the uh, debates, you'll see his advertisements on the air. He's, he's definitely stepping up his game, and he's trying to get climate-responsible legislators elected at the national level. So look for that next-gen climate. So those guys are involved, but she says they're really not going to be able to do enough to move the needle on this issue. And she comes back to uh, Branson and what's happened with all that and basically said that it's all petered out. Uh, the $3 billion that he was going to invest to sort of trickled down to a couple hundred million. He did make some effort, but never got to where he wanted uh, or where he claimed he wanted. And uh, that $25 million Earth Prize never got awarded because they said it would take more than $25 million to do a proof of principle to show that any of the uh, projects that came forth in that plan uh, have any merit. So there you have it with the green uh, billionaires. The third magical thinking idea that she brings forth is she titles the chapter Dimming the Sun, and it's all about geoengineering. That's probably a buzzword that some of you have heard, most, most of you. Her subtitle of that chapter is, The Solution to Pollution is Pollution. <laughs> More pollution. Uh, and the basic idea is that if technology screwed it up, then technology can fix it, right? Makes good sense. There's never any unintended consequences, so uh, um, we should be able to handle this. Uh, this is actually the opening scene of the movie, where, where she goes to... Uh, Britain, and they've got a big conference on geoengineering and how to set uh, rules about what's acceptable geoengineering and what's not acceptable geoengineering. One of the big buzzwords you'll hear in this area is called SRM, Solar Radiation Management, controlling how much sun hits the earth. 
That sounds like the best way to keep global warming from happening, right? Just get less sun. Well, it creates a whole bunch of really Frankenstein-type possibilities there. You know, if we start putting stuff up in the atmosphere to reduce the amount of sun that hits the earth, as soon as we stop, we get the rebound effect, and things get to be twice as bad as they would have been had we done nothing at all. That's one negative. Also, some of these plans can be implemented at fairly nominal cost, which means that one of those green billionaires could turn rogue and just decide to do the whole world a favor and put SO2 up into the uh, upper atmosphere and get us back to the right temperature range. But that doesn't do a thing for CO2 getting dissolved in the oceans and ocean acidification and all the other side effects, uh, too much CO2 in the environment. And it also really screws with our weather patterns. You know, we think the the polar vortex has been bad the last couple of years. If we start pumping SO2 into the uh, uh, atmosphere, we've got no idea what's going to happen with with drought patterns and rain patterns and agricultural patterns and things like that. Some of the modeling that they're doing right now on those effects are, are truly, truly scary. So this is really probably not a good way to go. Um, but it's, it's all part of that, that false hubris that technology is going to save us somehow. And it goes back to those days of Francis Bacon. And it makes you wonder, why don't we just switch to renewables? So another quote... In my time spent among the would-be geoengineers, she says, I've been repeatedly struck by how the hard-won lessons about humility before nature that have reshaped modern science, particularly the fields of chaos and complexity theory, do not appear to have penetrated this particular bubble. On the contrary, the geo-clique is crammed with overconfident men prone to complimenting each other on their fearsome brain power. You know, we're smart enough to fix this. Yeah. Okay, that's the magical thinking. Third and final section is uh, starting anyway. And uh, she deals with this whole idea that she calls blockadia. I guess it's a takeoff on Arcadia, but it's the idea that there are, are climate movements springing up everywhere across the world in in a variety of different guises. And now with social media and the Internet, they're actually talking to each other and they're reinforcing each other. Uh, If you think about what happened with the Keystone Pipeline over the last, what, five, six, seven years, it's really pretty amazing that those groups were able to work together so effectively and, and really affect change. Think about the Forward on Climate March in February 2013. 40,000 people showed up in D.C. I was there. Uh, maybe I am becoming an activist. Um, a year and a half later, in March of, uh, or no, in September, the, the People's Climate March in September 2014, 400,000 people, 10 times more. You've got Idle No More in Canada. The uh, indigenous peoples are, are working together to try to, to stop some of these huge extractive projects uh, in Canada. You've got stories from Greece and from India and from Canada and Nigeria and more places around the world, even China, where citizens groups are standing up in opposition to uh, major extraction projects. So she's claiming that this is the beginning of of a major trend that we're going to be seeing more and more of. And she's also pointing out that these battles reinforce each other. They're not all in isolation. One battle doesn't rob from another, but rather causes battles to multiply with each act of courage and each victory inspiring others 
to strengthen their resolve. She says, in Blockadia, risk assessment done by big corporations has been abandoned on the barricaded roadside and replaced by a resurgence of the precautionary principle, which holds that when human health and environment are significantly at risk, perfect scientific certainty is not required before taking action, or in this case, before blocking action. Um, So that's a big shift. We're no longer letting the corporations decide, but we're taking responsibility in our own communities for the kinds of projects that we are going to allow go forward. She says this sense of moral clarity after so many decades of chummy green partnerships, referring back to the uh, EDF uh, uh, fiascos with Walmart and everybody else, is the real shock for the extractive industries. The climate movement has found its non-negotiables. So things are changing in her estimation. The next chapter is called Love Will Save This Place. And the, the main point that I gleaned from that chapter was an idea of love of place, of belonging someplace. Uh, she talks about the idea that, that the extractive industries come in with people from who knows where, do their dirty work and leave and abandon place. They have, they're transient. They have no coupling to place. Whereas many of the, the places that they are engaged in uh, have indigenous peoples that have been there for generations and generations, you know, hundreds of generations, and have a very, very deep love and commitment to place. So her argument is that that love of place will ultimately trump the greed of the corporations in extracting those resources. Uh, We'll see how that plays out. And one of the other interesting things that she says there, you you heard in my bio that I'm involved in in water and water treatment in in third world countries. She makes the case that water is sort of the underlying theme that ties together that love of place. The idea that uh, water in rivers and watersheds, uh, that fracking consumes such huge amounts of water and contaminates it, that oil sands is doing the same thing up in Canada, that water is sort of the underlying connector that ties together all of these indigenous communities in these places with their love of place. She also talks in this chapter a little bit about divestment, which is kind of one of my pet topics. I'll do my best not to talk about it here today. But to say that the fossil fuel divestment movement has grown since 2013 from $13 million to $50 billion in 2014 to $2.6 trillion in September of last year to $3.4 trillion in December of last year, right before COP21. So this is one of the fastest divestment movements ever. There's a uh, a fossil-free group on campus. I don't know if they're doing a whole lot, but uh, there's 300 campuses across the country that have fossil-free movements in most major denominations. There's, There's a huge, growing effort for divestment. Enough said. I'll talk your ear off about that afterwards. The next chapter is all about indigenous rights. It's titled You and What Army? And it kind of follows up on that idea of not kicking people off the land, of of that that love of where they belong. And this one focuses on a very different relationship of the indigenous peoples in Canada to 
their land and their treaties than what we find here in the U.S. In the U.S., we rounded up the Indian tribes and put them on reservations, right? And they pretty much lost their cultural integrity and they lost their, their connection to the land that they owned. In Canada, they made treaties with the government to share the land. And the language in the treaties says that they are allowed to use the land in perpetuity the same way that they're using it that they were using it when the treaties were signed. And the indigenous peoples are now using those treaties as a way to say, if you destroy our woodsheds and our watersheds, then we can no longer use the land the way that we used it thousands of years ago, and therefore you are in violation of the treaty. And it's working. That's the amazing thing. In fact, Naomi Klein calls it the rights-rich capital-poor indigenous groups are now teaming up with the capital-rich, rights-poor environmental organizations to actually come up with ways to address these issues in, in ways that are recognized by the courts as effective. So it's, it's a fascinating idea. There's a group called Idle No More in Canada that uh, is binding together tribes to act in concert with each other, and they are now identifying other uh, environmental groups with which they can work to bring these cases to court and to actually begin winning them. So this is a... a encouraging development. The next chapter is called Sharing the Sky, the Atmospheric Commons, and the Power of Paying Our Debts. Here she's talking about equity between developed world and developing or undeveloped world and how we've really got to think about what that equity means. Just a couple of quick quotes here on that to set the stage. Ecuador has a whole bunch of oil under its forests. And Ecuador made a deal, uh, or tried to make a deal, that if we don't drill it and produce all that carbon, you've got to pay us for it anyway. Pay us not to drill it. Here's a quote. Ecuador, like all developing countries, is owed a debt for the inherent injustice of climate change. The fact that wealthy countries have used up most of the atmospheric capacity for safely absorbing CO2 before developing countries had a chance to industrialize. We beat them to it. If wealthy countries do not want poorer ones to pull themselves out of poverty the same dirty way that we did, the onus is on northern governments to help foot the bill. This, of course, is the core argument for the existence of a climate debt. So it's, it's not exactly the same argument as reparations for slavery, but it's, it's paying people not to do bad stuff. And it's something we need to think about. She also says, with many of the biggest pools of untapped carbon on lands controlled by some of the poorest people on the planet, and with emissions rising most rapidly in what were, until recently, some of the poorest parts of the world, there is simply no credible way forward that does not involve redressing the real roots of poverty. The last chapter is about uh, reproduction, about the fact that we are killing the juveniles in species, and uh, we need to be concerned about that. She finishes by talking about the fact that things have changed dramatically in just the last five years that she's been working on this book. 
six years now because it's been a year since the book was published, and that she's really of the belief that we are on the edge of a tipping point, a social tipping point in being able to finally coalesce and change everything to address climate. She makes an analogy that I'm not going to touch between fossil fuel dependence and dependence on slavery back in uh, uh, the abolition days. But I do want to finish with uh, this quote from her. We will not win the battle for a stable climate by trying to beat the bean counters at their own game. Arguing, for instance, that it's more cost-effective to invest in emission reduction now, now than a disaster response later. We will win by asserting that such calculations are morally monstrous since they imply that there's an acceptable price for allowing entire countries to disappear, for leaving untold millions to die on parched land, for depriving today's children of their right to live in a world teeming with the wonders and beauties of creation. The climate movement has yet to find a full moral voice on the world stage, but it is most certainly clearing its throat. Some of the voices of moral clarity are coming from the very young, who are calling on the streets and increasingly in the courts for intergenerational justice. Most of all, those clarion voices are coming from the front lines of blockadia, from those lives most directly impacted both by high-risk fossil fuel extraction and by early climate destabilization. We've got a big lift ahead of us, and it's not going to be easy. But the challenge is there, and we can address it. The last paragraph in the book. A year ago, I was having dinner with some newfound friends in Athens. I asked them for ideas about what questions I should put to the young leader of Greece's official opposition party and one of the few sources of hope in a Europe ravaged by austerity. Someone suggested... Ask him, history knocked on your door. Did you answer? That's a good question for all of us. Questions? Hi, I have two questions. First of all, do you think the global and national trends towards urbanization will continue to place more demand and faith in government action and involvement, leading to a more communal-focused use of resources or simply expand the resource market and the labor sources for these corporations. In, in cities like Knoxville and then in Portland, that we had the during the 50s, the white flight supposedly where people moved out to the suburbs. Many of those people now are coming back to the cities, but they're wanting more services and they're wanting um, regulation. Do you think that <clears throat> this increase of urbanization will provide more opportunities for government involvement or will it just give corporations more markets and more labor? Well, I, I think what you identified is, is very true, and it's uh, uh, your generation that's driving that trend. Uh, more and more young people are giving up on their cars, uh, and there's a lot of things that are suggesting that, that uh, higher density, more walkable communities are the wave of the future. And if you're paying attention to what's happening with uh, Uber and with Google and with Apple Car and all these sorts of things, uh, in another decade, if we've got driverless cars, the need for any individual car ownership might go poof. And that sort of reinforces that whole idea that this, this intensification of city centers can happen. Whether or not that's going to 
create more opportunity for communalism, as Naomi describes as desirable, or more opportunity for free market uh, uh, engagement is really up to us. Uh, I think it's an independent parameter. We can decide whether or not we want those things to develop with community infrastructure or with corporate infrastructure. And, you know, elections matter. Who we elect matters. And that's going to determine a great deal of what direction that moves in. So let's say a farmer in India or Central Asia, Central America loses their farm and they go to a city and they're with many other people who often don't speak the same languages as them, they don't look the same. How do these people, how do we help these people find a purpose um, in the community of the city? And many times they've lost their whole former way of life and prevent them just from becoming cogs in the machine of the cap. Well, I, th- I think that's an opportunity for, for the, the kind of uh, disaster capitalism that Naomi Klein talks against because we've got situations like that in Syria, for example, where uh, one of the big causes of the unrest there was the, the severe droughts for years that drove so many people to the cities where there weren't opportunities uh, and there was cultural dislocation and that disconnection from place, from home. Uh, all of those things cause huge disruption. And I, I think the answer is to not let it happen, to, to try to get ahead of the curve and to slow down the climate change to deal with it in that way. What to do about it after it's already occurring, and it will occur more and more, is a very difficult uh, issue. And I don't have an answer for it. You said towards the end that she's saying, rather than the economic argument about it's cheaper to address the problem now than pay later and that she says we really should make this a moral argument. Um, Can you give me your opinion on that and with the idea that not everybody has the same basis for their morality or their what they think is is important, it seems to me it would be difficult to make that a moral argument and that the logical argument may be I don't know, an easier sell or more compelling. I think one of the problems that we have in trying to make the, uh, as you put it, the logical argument is that that's, that's data-based. And as we talked about earlier in the talk, we are almost all ideological-based. So we're going to respond based on our ide- ideologies and, and twist the data to fit whatever um, storyline we want to hear uh, I know that in my work in the Presbyterian Church and, and the divestment movement there, um, you can make the logical argument that you won't lose your investment by divesting from fossil fuels, and there's plenty of evidence for it. That's not the argument to make in that community. Uh, the argument to make there is very definitely the moral argument. It's wrong to do this. And I think it's it's pretty clear based on most moral principles that it's wrong to set up uh, systems that damage those that are least able to defend themselves, uh, that's been a kind of a moral premise of most of civilization. So I, th- I think the moral case is an easy one to make when you can identify large populations that, will, uh, that have no way to protect themselves and defend themselves that will be disadvantaged by the actions that we in the first world are taking because we want a big screen TV. So I, th- I think the moral case is a strong one, personally. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to Book Sandwiched In, a lunchtime book discussion series sponsored by Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. To find other podcasts, please visit our website at knoxlib.org.